Do we make decisions by emotion or by logic? Actually, science, and as we're going to find out, the Book of Mormon tells us that we have that gives us knowledge and understanding that is neither emotion-driven or often is not very much logic-driven. It is a third way. The third way of learning and making decisions and drawing closer to God by gaining understanding in our heart. Let's talk today about understanding in our heart and how that difference in some ways from other ways of gaining knowledge, but maybe more accurate, even proven scientifically. Join us today for this fascinating discussion on gut, instinct, and understanding in our heart. Thanks for coming. And welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. that we'll go ahead and uh, get started I want to welcome everybody out Um, uh, I promise uh, we have talked about we're trying to get through the Book of Mormon before Come Follow Me catches up to us so we're not running parallel with it Uh, so that means we need to move here but the problem is is that we keep keep running into stuff we're still having a hard time getting out of third Nephi And then we will hurry quickly so we can get on to uh, church history. Um, but uh, in, in ahead of that today, I want to want to start in, in an unusual place. Um, I, I like to I like to kind of see a lot of what is out there with uh, uh, biblical scholars and church scholars and see what it is that they're talking about. And it's interesting, both in and out of the church, I he- I hear the same term being ascribed to the Savior. Uh, the, a, a term that I think is kind of interesting has kind of caught my attention because it seems to be uh, becoming very popular and, and really accurate. We think about all of the names that we give to the Savior and in terms of healer and uh, redeemer and older brother and all that kind of stuff. Here's the term that I hear used, being used a lot now. Jesus as an alchemist. Okay, so w- w- what's alchemy? Well, in ancient times, uh, up until the 1700s, many people believed that you could, through magic, uh, through ma- sort of magic, yeah, you could convert lead into gold. And it was symbolic of converting a, a natural man's heart to the heart of God and Christ. You know? And that was the idea. The thing that made the term really popular was Pablo Coelho's, the Brazilian writer. You know, he wrote his second book. Which is oh, I've read all of those, but go ahead. You know, it was For, the alchemist. And the, yeah, oh, okay. 
And I, I think that's where a lot of that comes from. Yes, definitely. So yeah. they spent centuries trying to figure out how to convert lead into gold. Yeah. And now they've converted uh, ones and zeros into gold. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is this transformation that goes on. And, and actually, I guess currently there is a process by which you can take quantities of lead and it can have it produce a small amount, I guess trace amounts of gold. Uh, but it was still this idea of we can we can take something of no worth really lead and we can and and by magic we can turn it into gold. Um, Cindy, you can probably turn the heat down just a little bit. We're rocking now. I'm asking the wrong person. What am I doing? <laughs> I woke up this morning and our bedroom was 77 and I went, oh my gosh. And she goes, what? <laughs> yeah, just turn it down just a little. <laughs> okay, so, but I, I, love the, I love the concept of, like for the natural man being, being transformed, being changed from, from whatever it is into something far more valuable. Uh, and, and we've been talking quite a bit about the fact that uh, that what we have seen as salvation or exaltation or something like that isn't so much about being saved as much as it is being changed and being transformed into, into people that could be comfortable living in God's presence. And so I, th- there is, I can see the allure in, in thinking of the Savior as somebody who comes along and changes us so that we become new creatures completely. Okay. Um, now, part of part of why I guess I keep coming back while we're having a hard time getting out of Third Nephi uh, is that there's this process here that is going on of change, where up till this point we've had these Nephites that go up and down and over and and they're good and they're bad and they're all over and they're fighting and stuff like that, and then. After a visit of just a few days, now we get 200 years of peace among these people. There has been an, an alchemist experience. There's been a change. They are different people. Okay? But, but 80% of the population was killed. I, I've thought about that. Now, it did help that some of those weren't around anymore, right? Um, but at the same time here... Um, I want, I want to talk about one of those things that I think is different both for us and for uh, others that would make this change. Um, if you guys need to put some more chairs or something up over here, you can. But uh, so, so let me start in an unlikely place about how that change, I think, occurs or what the change looks like. Um, the Harvard Business Review is always a great place to look for your uh, religious uh, understandings. <laughs> Great place, but but I'm seeing a body of research that is really fascinating uh, to me. Maybe as a as a therapist, my my uh, interest is always in how and why people change from what they're doing to what they can become, and how that healing process or changing process uh, has to occur. And there's a growing body of uh, of uh, research on on this particular topic. Despite popular belief, there's a deep neurological basis for intuition. Scientists call the stomach the second brain for a reason. 
There's a vast neural network of 100 million neurons lining your entire digestive tract. That's more neurons that are found in the spinal cord, which points to the gut's incredible processing abilities. Okay? Uh, Nikki, we might have to draw on you. She's, she's my uh, nurse practitioner in, in, in my office. And when, I'm, when I get stuck on some things, I have to look over her and go, okay, tell me about this. Um, when you approach a decision intuitively. Does that have anything to do with the way to a man's heart is through his stomach? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> that is <laughs> Yes. <laughs> is it, that's, I mean, that's why we think better after we've, you know, had cobbler. So, so then it also has to do with their gods are in their bellies? <laughs> Something like that. Yes. Yeah, that, that is the, that's how we learn stuff, okay? Um, we have a dog that learns that way, you know? We just keep feeding her treats and she learns. Uh, when you approach a decision intuitively, your brain works in tandem with your gut to quickly assess all your memories, past learnings, personal needs, and preferences that makes the wisest decision given the context. In this way, intuition is a form of emotional and experiential data which leaders need to value. Okay? Now, sometimes we get caught in this idea of, I need to make a decision. I don't want to make an emotional decision. It needs to be a logical decision. And so we're balanced. I don't, I don't want to be emotional. I want to be logical. And sometimes people will say, I don't like the illogical thing. I want to, it's an emotional thing, but I'm not sure I want to do that. So I've got to somehow get the emotion out. Intuition is not, is, is a third way in between those two. It's not an emotional one. And, and it's not going to be a logical one. Because when they're looking at intuition, oftentimes it goes against what logic sometimes is trying to tell you. But what they're saying is there is some logic behind your intuition. Now, a lot of times your logic is not actually correct to begin with. So there is a, a yeah, there, right? yeah. Hold on to that idea because I, I think that's exactly right. But there's a reason for that. That that sometimes our logic messes us up because it comes from a lot of it's baked into us from a lot of sources. Even if you're not consciously using your intuition, you still probably experience benefits from it every day. Everyone knows what it feels like to have a pit in your stomach when you weigh a decision. Okay? It's the gut talking loud and clear. Okay? And I don't have, we can go into moms in here and go like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I, was, I was talking to my, uh, to my bishop about this uh, yesterday. And... Uh, it's interesting. He said that um, we talked about how the gut hears things and responds to things. And he says, sometimes when I'm doing uh, Temple Recommend interviews, uh, and I will ask people the standard questions, and they're answering with a smile on their face and all the right answers. And then he goes, it just, right, Brent? It just doesn't, there, there's something here. So he says, I have learned when I'm feeling those things to just stop and smile and pause. <laughs> and then there'll be an awkward silence. <laughs> and then they go, 
well, <laughs> here comes here, here comes the thing that's coming out. But if you're just looking at a transcript of things, you'd say, okay, here's here's what was said. They answered it the right way, but there is a something else. Okay, and again, the close. I, I think again, moms have been really good at going. What's up? <laughs> And I've been sensing it, and I've been feeling it. I don't have words to it, but I... Hmm. Okay? Um, and, and I thought this was... In, I found this also from uh, Albert Einstein, who says, I believe in intuitions and inspirations. I sometimes feel that I am right. I do not know that I am. <laughs> sometimes he's righter than... Now, if you've ever had the experience of taking a test... And quickly going down and answering the questions, and then you then you go back to look at it. You get done fast, and you go back and you start to answer it, and you go, and you go back and change them. How often does the change end up being wrong? Yes. Where you're why you changed it? Yeah. I mean, when I take a test, I I put the answer down, and if I'm not sure of the answer, I put a you know a marker. I wrote the, write the question number. Yeah. Then I go back and reread the question, and if I discover that I read the question wrong, which is not uncommon, <laughs> then I change the answer. It's good, but if I just am changing the answer because because I got thinking about it too much. Yeah. 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 Specifically, yeah. it's shown that like kids who are taking the SAT or whatever that their first inclination. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, and that's where those studies, a lot of these are coming up, is like, uh, so often when people are just going instinctively and they answer, it's like they know it, they put it down, and then they start analyzing. Okay? So, so that's one of the things then that I found. Oh, and then let me finish with Einstein. The intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. Let that one roll through for just a sec. <laughs> the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational mind is a faithful servant to that gift, right? We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Wow. That's, that's pretty good, right? Um, all right, let's see. I'm going to... So is there more before the ending quote? Or? No, I'm just going to... No, I'm going to take it completely out of context so you won't know the rest of it. <laughs> I don't know. That's all I got was that part. There probably is. It would be worth it. Okay, so I'm going to... I'm going to jump ahead here. Um, okay, so, so here's often what I find uh, in, in my office along these lines. And this will be familiar for uh, some of you who may have seen me, me talk about this. Uh, sometimes we start then in our life with some kind of question or some kind of dilemma that we've got to resolve. <coughs> and our, our gut reaction uh, tends to have almost an immediate response to that. I think we will say a lot of times, what I probably should do, or what I probably shouldn't do, is the one we do most often. I, I know I, sh I probably shouldn't do this, but... Okay? 
So we get this instinctive sense of what needs to happen, which, which Joseph Smith said, this is right about nine times out of ten. Okay, cool. So we get this gut response to a dilemma. Now, what happens though is that then we're going to take it upstairs and now we've got to work out, okay, here's what I need to do. I got this sense of what I need to do and I'm going to, here's probably when I ought to do it and how. Uh, I use the example sometimes that we might be sitting in church, we see a new family come in or somebody we don't recognize. And like we have a gut response that says, I probably ought to go say hello. I probably ought to check up on somebody. I'd call somebody. I, I probably should do that. Okay? And then we're going to have to decide, okay, I need to get out. I need to go do this. I, I need to pick up the phone. I need to, I need to, I need to. We just have this, all right, I'm going to figure out how to do that. Now, that, sh- that should be a pretty effective way to live if we're going to respond to what we're hearing. But like we were just talking about, here's the, the problem is, is that's not what happens. The problem is, that I find, is that so often, at least with me, is that I will say, this is probably what I, I probably shouldn't, last Saturday night, I probably shouldn't have the cobbler. (laughs) Trying to lose some weight. But, (laughs) I've never been able to pass up hot peach cobbler. I don't think that's in my realm of capability. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, just this time. I'll just work. I'll exercise a little more. Okay, I probably. But the problem is, is that uh, when when we go, but now we put ourselves in the realm of what I call inner critic logic. (laughs) You have, based on your experience in life and how you frame your world and how you see yourself and what how other people have told you that you are and and either traumatic experiences that you've had or just habits or whatever it is we have this whole series of thinking process that we then respond to and it might be it might include things like uh, some kind of past negative history the last time I said something to this person coming, you know, the, in sacrament meeting, they turned me down or it didn't turn out well or I felt awkward or something, okay? It can be past criticisms so that we doubt our ability or capabilities. It can be self-doubts. I just don't trust me very much. I could do this, I could do this, but... <laughs> I'm not that good at it. It's just me. I'm just, other people are better at this. Okay. They want me to speak in church. I, I probably should, but I never have much great to say. And, you know, and I'm going to probably have some anxiety and I'm trying to avoid that and whatever it is. Okay. Sometimes our gut is telling us to do things. And then there's just flat out fears. We're afraid of us. We're afraid that we can't do this or we shouldn't do this. Yeah, Alan? I have a question. So isn't it the case, though, that a lot of times, I, you know, and I'll say this obviously as a token crazy person over here, <laughs> but isn't it the case, though, that sometimes our intuition, like, like I can see where 
the applicability of what we're saying here makes sense when you're talking about taking the SATs. Uh -huh. But I don't think that in all of the decision context or decision scenarios that we get placed in in life, I don't think that that necessarily holds true. I'll give you an example. If I'm driving down the road and I'm having a particularly bad day, and I hope I'm not the only one to say this in this room. I probably but, are, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we'll just I let know, that be. I know that I, I can tend to make terribly bad decisions. Yeah, right. I can think of other, think of other situations, you know, um, where, you know, like if I'm, having a, if I'm having a bad day and I come home from work and then, you know, something you know i'm in a bad mood then my instinct tells me to react irrationally ah. then i then i you know i think that's a and i think so i think but i think that it goes beyond i think that what i'm saying goes beyond just whether you're your mood i think it can also be affected by the context there are people who definitely make terrible terrible decisions in certain contexts um for whatever reason yeah you know uh, you know, um, the singer Bono from U2 uh -huh. has lost like more money than you know anybody on the planet because of his stupid financial decision. Sure, sure. And you'd wonder what 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 led to him making the decisions. Now, I, I will tell you, I think that's a really good point because sometimes there's a there's kind of this line between our reactions to things and uh, and what we're talking about gut instinct. Because I can think of even times when I have reacted like I've been really angry I get ready to honk a horn or something that's my first response but almost simultaneously with that is usually like I probably shouldn't do this okay. <laughs> there, there is this internal sense almost almost per this is probably not a good idea but they make me so mad and I you know, and there's sometimes that. Sometimes I think that gut response is there's a split second in there, and the more we exercise this, I think we, the better we get it. But sometimes you're right; it's it's so reactive that maybe we're not even hearing it. Yeah. So because he bought up Bono, and we have <laughs> no no basis for Bono's investment. Yeah, yeah. But I'm I'm a I'm a stock trader. Yeah. Uh -huh. okay, that's what I do. Ninety-nine percent is an understatement for how many people who trade day trade and, and swing trade uh, on their proprietary gut yeah. lose more than they can afford within three months. Yeah. So. Do you think it now? Do you think it's gut thing, or do you think it's like I'm smarter than? Everybody else is going right, and I'm smarter. I'll make money because I'll if go you, left. If you're smarter and you use logic, yeah. then you have a, a capability right. of having a written trading plan, a right. business plan. Yeah. And uh, people who have a business plan, only about 90% of them lose their money in three months. And, and <laughs> As opposed other, to 99 with the others? The other 10% <laughs> follow, follow their business plan. Ah, Okay, and and so right. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I'm, I, I'm a, I've been a computer programmer most of my life, so I tend to be a very logical. Person. Uh, yeah, yeah. And in some cases, I was in customer support, and uh, like I worked for Saber, which does software the traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Canada wants to figure out a problem that only they were having, and you could, you know. 
What's interesting is when you go in front of the customers, they literally pray in front of their computers sometimes. Right? <laughs> you don't know why on earth it won't work. this uh, mythical thing, right? That God will help me know how to turn the computer right, on. Right, kind right. Of. I mean, and of course, as a, a programmer that is going to, you know, being paid to fix it. Right. You have, anyway, what works consistently is some methodical method right. and some tools to analyze it and say, well, okay, it's not this, right? Right. And uh, I remember uh, even as a programmer, some people say, oh, it's Sometimes you'll jump to a conclusion and you say, oh, well, I've seen that before. And then you try to, oh, well, that wasn't it. And so, like I said, again, obviously sometimes you go into the debugging and step through yeah. carefully. And, and that, anyway, a lot of hard problems will more consistently get solved if you have a consistent logical way. But what you're talking about is cases where there is no way to, right? Sometimes. Yeah. You have some information, but not enough to methodically narrow it down, and you just have to go by your gut. And, and anyway, I agree with what you're saying. But I'm saying is that there are cases where you can more carefully analyze it, and that will more. A absolutely. Like with Albert Einstein, he was really on the mark with the relativity thing, but in the quantum mechanics world, yeah. he said God does not play dice, and he just couldn't accept it because yeah. he didn't. It, it didn't match here, right? Well, he was wrong. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's right. But I would be willing to bet, sometimes when you were problem solving, and, and you'd go in and you'd look at the client, you'd look at the situation, and before you even sat down, I bet there were times you went, I'll bet I know what's going on here. It's like you're taking in a, a, a hundred factors simultaneously, Looking at the person, the situation, the age of the computer, and all that, you're going, I'll bet, I'll bet it. But the fact that you are there is shows they're probably an exception. Anyway, sometimes it's wrong, and then you say, yeah. oh no. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to have to Yeah, I think. And th th that's why th this becomes a factor, because I, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, as many of my viewers, Brothers and sisters, I have very logical problems. I like to think. But I have learned in only probably 45 years that logic without knowledge is nothing. Uh, one of the things that you, what we are talking about, our God, it needs to be connected with information. So uh -huh. you don't have that information, no matter how logic we are, yeah. we are going to. Uh -huh. be circling around the same place. Now, we can be very logic and react with our God, but because logic and information has given us that ability that's right. To use that God. Right, but I think that's one of the reasons why. See, that's why I say it's a it's a, a heart. We want to sometimes say a gut reaction is emotional, and that's why the research is saying the brain cells are there to say our gut response is taking in data from what we know. It all kind of comes together. But I think, and and sorry guys. This is an area where actually women by research are better at this because the brains are constructed a little bit differently. So that so they're taking on so many more factors. We tend to be fairly focused 
what we're really good at as men is right there. What women are good at is gathering data from a lot of things, and that information is coming together, and that's what researchers are saying is, is gut. It is based on knowledge and information and past experience, but things that aren't necessarily conscious to you right at that moment. But that's where that's, so it's not an emotional flash as much as it is knowledge that is embedded in our experience that comes out gut even though we can't explain it. Does that make sense? Am I getting too complicated? Yeah. I feel like this is, um, I've been trying really hard to, okay. <laughs> I'm really hard to follow um, the, the President Nelson and you follow inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. That's the gut. And that is so hard to trust. Yeah. I'm trying to just jump past the fears. Uh, Fear, fear of what? Uh, I have, you know, anything. I can think of everything. Oh, for, where I, I'd have to do something. Action, Got it. When I say hello to that person, and already in about six and a half milliseconds, I thought of every possible thing that could possibly go wrong. In the next <laughs> yes, time. yes, yes. So, you know, trying to respond to that, but I keep thinking when you started talking about all of this, I keep going back as a piano teacher. It's also that Crab uh, Wilcox. That's interesting. You know, there's a difference. And so uh, for me, this relationship of uh, this kind of action and Brazil Fox, thank you for making piano teachers important. Um, do you remember the topic? Yes. But that kind of aspect of trusting that my fingers will get to the right place at the right time, that's what moves us forward. It's always been interesting. When my son was in uh, jazz band, uh, in, in high school. He talked about, I mean, they're all, they'd all learned the basics and th they're good musicians or they wouldn't have ended up in jazz band. But then when it's like, okay, we're going to, you're going to, why don't you take a riff on this next one? And it's like, I got to transcend what I'm doing and just move, move with that. But I, I know what I know. But now instinctively, this thing is flowing here and I have to trust my abilities and act on. The, the ability to to riff, right? Yeah, our family church came up. I, we have family church family, come follow me. Um, but it's instead of you will prosper in the way, you will progress. And we thought that is a more accurate word. I like that. You will make progress. And I think that's what instinctively... That, that we're drawing on that, but we have to trust that ability to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rock with this. Yeah. Progress. I like that. Move okay. Jim, you had a... Yeah, so, I mean, what Soledad was talking about, where people need uh, a basis for their logic, and, and um, I'm thinking that so often people have really good logic uh, that they attach to really bad assumptions. 
and, and the logic <laughs> yes. is perfect. Oh. Your assumptions are wrong, you know. And this follow your gut thing. Yeah. I mean, in the Doctrine and Covenants, it tells us we need to study it, read yeah. and, and ponder it, and then do what feels. And study it where? In, in our, our mind, mind and in our and our, our heart. That's okay. that, that, that's right. But a lot of times we have taken out the heart part because we say that's emotion. I'm saying that there is this sense of, and a trust that unlocks something for us. And so, so for instance, let me give you an example of this. I think that one of the struggles that we have sometimes like with the Old Testament and scriptures in general is that, especially with the Old Testament, we're going to read the Old Testament and it just doesn't feel good. There's something, it's like we're, they're supposed to wipe out Canaanite cities and it just doesn't feel good. Now, our logic says, if you are, if you are a, if you're evangelical Christian tied to sola scriptura, then every word in the Bible must be true, and you can't take anything away from it, and you're locked to it. I think if you're listening to your gut, your gut says, there's something about this translation that is not helpful. There's something about it that's not inspired. I don't know what it is, but I'm not getting the same connection to this thing, this this passage of Scripture. There's something about this that is off. And, and I think we can do that and not get threatened by it, but just say, my gut is telling me there's something in all these years of translation where they this might not be as accurate as we might think. Yeah? I, I was just thinking that because sometimes I have time to explain what I'm thinking, you know. <laughs> so I was thinking that logic limit limit us to our knowledge for a topic. Uh -huh. Our God, we can use all the knowledge that we have acquired since we were probably our yeah. mother's right. stomach. So in that case, our decisions can be better sometimes with our God because we are not taking only one particular situation. We are taking yeah. everything that we know that it can guide us a better response. Well, and even as Latter-day Saints, where do we believe that we started learning? In pre-existence. So, so we're also believing there is a spiritual part of us that had however long we had been taught by heavenly beings and then we come to this earth and we get this we get this reaction we just yeah yeah I, I'm gonna take another go at it <laughs> so I think that I, all these comments you know brother Colton's comment the sisters who talked about piano all these comments pose a very interesting question to me and that is can you basically teach intuition can you teach intuition? Is, that, is intuition something that can be learned? I, as a musician myself, right, yeah. as a drummer, I can say yeah. that that's a thing. I do believe that, that intuition can be learned. Because learned or trusted? Trusted. Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you're going for the trusted. That's what the obviously, is, yes. You know, you know. Yes. <laughs> but let me, let, me say, let me say this, though. Um, I thought of another, a better example yeah. to prove that there's intuition that we can have that shouldn't be followed. Right. Okay? And that is that um, uh, in the media, in the media, we can be conditioned 
yeah. can be conditioned to believe certain things. Yes. Okay? Yeah. So you can, you know, there are unfortunately a lot of people who 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 have been led to believe a lot of really crazy, stupid things, like about lizard people and holograms, <laughs> you know, presidents living in Cuba, etc. And moon I, moon landings. I moon landings. Yeah. And the reason that that has happened is is because they have this device that's all powerful that teaches them things and it teaches it's basically reprogrammed their intuition so i don't know if that intuition comes from themselves or someplace else but i also know that in the church we if you come to church and if you partake of the fruit you can learn how to tap yeah. into the spirit so i don't i you know i'm having okay okay hold a bit with okay talk or not okay right? hold, hold on to that i, I like that okay you got you're heading in the right direction here. See if see if this makes sense. Let me just finish this off. So so a lot of times what I find with with people is that if I I keep trying to tell my clients that I, if I get them to trust their gut more often, I think they make better decisions. I just think they do. But but they have been so preconditioned by what they've been taught and drilled into to trust other things and don't trust themselves, especially if if they've been in a really bad marriage where they're always being talked out of don't trust your gut thing but so generally what happens is is that if I feel like I get an answer about what I'm supposed to do now I go but and I think instead a lot of times they'll make another choice rather than the one that they were originally left with yeah I think we're leaving out a component on our discussion here we are bodies which has a brain and we have all these emotions, these feelings, but we also have a spirit. And our spirit, uh, it has capacities that uh, we begin to feel when we're younger, but depending on how much we trust in logic and government and everything else, that kind of gets set set aside. You know, we lose sight of it. But our spirit, it. Just like we inherit characteristics from our earthly parents, we inherit from our heavenly parents. And those characteristics are a sense of um, the Spirit of Christ, a sense of righteousness, a sense that is more than God and that's more than logic. So that's probably more confusing than helpful. I have something before you move on. Yes, ma'am. Stephen Covey, in one of his early books called Spiritual Roots of Human Roots, yeah, the, the classic. He mentioned something about how to train yourself to listen, because somebody over here mentioned that. Can you learn? Can you learn intuition? I think. Yes. And it reminded me of what Brother Covey had said that he says we need to teach ourselves to act. When we hear or feel something. Yes. Yeah. He said, uh, I, I can't remember if, if I came up with this or if it's something that he said that made me think about it. But because uh, it had been a few years ago. Um, but if you pass by a table and there's a glass of water on it, and you think, I ought to get that water, I ought to get that glass and go put it in the sink, or else it's going to spill. And then you don't do it, and then sometime later in the day, sure enough, the water spills 
the glass gets knocked over, the water gets spilled. But he says, if you'll go ahead and do it, yeah. then that's a step in your training. To listen to yourself more. To listen and act when you listen. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> do we not need to distinguish between fast decisions and slow decisions? I mean, if we are... Yeah. But we don't want to react right. and use our intuition, our gut, with our negative reactions. Yeah. Uh, so I think we're talking more deliberative decisions here, more than what... None of us want to take our initial reaction to situations and use our gut reaction. Uh, well, at least for me. <laughs> See, yeah, because I'm going I'm to argue with you just a little bit on that. Because well, I, I, I think you're right. I think it's deliberative, but it, it depends a lot on which voice we're... Situational. Yeah, I yeah. I never want to have to ponder what I'm doing while I'm driving down the road. Well, no, 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 that's, not, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm yeah. talking about uh, one of your kids comes in and... Uh, they've made a really dumb decision and you're you don't want to react like that that's right at a high level right yeah. I, I agree although I think even at times like that uh, even when I have maybe reacted emotionally to something that my kids did it, I think it, the better we get at this I think there would have been an initial stop or, or listen, and then, then emotionally we kick it. Yeah, but they should have, and I. So, so I think so. Some of it, I think Alan's saying. I think some of it is training. Yeah. So there's a meme that floats around. There's a few ways to float from someone. I'll probably say it very wrong, but it's like your first response is but kind of comes in a spot. Anyways, um, like your first response is your programming, and then your second. So. Response to having to listen yeah so so, so let, let's put it in, let's put it in the realm where I think we get some additional help on, on moments like that because what I, part of what I'm finding as, in the scriptures is that you get this parallel here and I think we're basically talking about some of the same things look, for instance look at look at uh, Isaiah it's actually a very funny chapter uh, with Isaiah. And I'm just going to, just this part. He says, they, uh, let me back up. I, I, I'll fill this in. He, part, part of what he's saying in here is, there are people. He says, and they will take like a big log. And, the, and part of the log, they'll burn in the fire and they'll use it to cook their food. And, it'll, and they'll be filled on that. Then they'll take the rest of the log and they'll make an idol out of it and worship that. 
He says the same log that was that that cooked your food and is now ashes, now you carved it into something and that's going to be your God. How weird is that? That The same thing. And he says, I just can't believe that you were doing something like that, knowing that it can either cook my food or you're going to make it into something and then under, you can't figure out why it is that it won't do anything. But he says, on top of that, you even carved it with your own hands and then you carved it and it didn't work. Okay, So, so he's going to say, these people that do these things, they have not known or understood, for he has shut so he has shut their eyes, they cannot see, and their hearts that they do not understand. Okay? Yeah. I think it's hard for us. I don't I, I mean I clearly don't condone idol worship. Okay. That's a good idea, yeah. But but it's hard for <laughs> us to uh, relate to somebody who has, let's say, a, a Buddha, okay, in their house. That they carve themselves. We think they're worshiping that Buddha in the house, but I tend to believe they're projecting that that Buddha helps them yeah. to worship the great Buddha somewhere else. Yeah. And, and so these guys have all statues of the same god they're not worshiping their statue they're using their statue as a focal point to help them to worship and, and I think there have been a number that have done exactly that and I think he was decrying at this case that they weren't necessarily doing that yeah certainly don't agree that they're doing the right thing <laughs> right uh, you can see why they how they I would don't do think it they're really worshiping that piece of wood yeah symbolism yeah We've got to be careful and pay attention to the source of the symbolism. Yeah, I think that's I think that's it. So, but I think it's interesting that Isaiah is going to kind of start to separate some of these things out. He says they cannot see, and in their hearts they do not understand. In their hearts, and none considereth in his heart. They're not even looking at their heart. It's just straight either tradition or logic or something like that. Neither is there knowledge or understanding in their heart. Because you can say, this is, this is where this needs to happen. Now, I find it interesting, and as I was reading this, I think I realized something. I think King Benjamin might have had this in front of him. Because there's an interesting parallel with King Benjamin. He's going to say, but... But that you should hearken unto me, he wants to hearken, that you may open your ears to hear, and your hearts that you may be that you may understand, and your minds that the mysteries of God may be unfolded unto you. And I think that's sometimes and, and the prophets will talk a lot about uh they have eyes to see and ears to hear, but they don't understand. They're taking in knowledge, they're taking in Learning, but there's no understanding that's coming with that. It's not at, not at that level. Can I just insert real quick that in traditional Judaism, all information is slotted under three blocks. The first one is knowledge, which is just facts, you know? Yeah, facts. The second one is understanding, which is processes. Okay, the third one is wisdom. And wisdom is any knowledge or any understanding that results in happiness. So if you have are not happy, you have no knowledge or wisdom. That's kind of a, a 
extreme statement, but it's, that's the Oh, I like that. In other words, what am I going, and then wisdom is then taking that understanding what, and then applying it? Yes, yes. I like that a lot. But let's come back, we'll, we'll circle that back to that in a sec. You're thinking? Well, <laughs> this comment about symbolism uh, really stirred my remembrance. Um, not long ago in, in a, a church meeting, we had a, a, somebody in our ward get up and they talked about the fact that the rostrum was built. Uh, there's, when you look at the rostrum, there's three, three panels. Uh-huh. That reminded him of the, the first presidency. And then he, there happened to be six panels on either side that made the, the frontis of the, and he says, those are the 12 apostles. And, and <laughs> I was the architect on that building. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't enter into it at all, <laughs> didn't it? And if it works, but if it worked for him, if it works for him, that's right. And, and helps him focus on uh, on the Savior during sacrament uh, ordinance. That's great. But we, I mean, symbolism. You really have to be careful. Well, and, and symbol and the, and the interesting thing about symbolism is that you might look at the symbolism like like uh, I love when when we're in when we uh, when we go to Kirtland and you go into the the Kirtland Temple uh, on the the pulpits as they as they go up in front there's a kind of a oblong two oblong shaped things that lie in front of those. Those rows, right? That that were built, designed, and built by Brigham Young. And what you do is you actually then take those, and when you pull those up and you put the little uh, board underneath it, so that they sit. That was a sacrament table, but they were built to resemble a harness. So that in a sense, a yoke. Yes, thank you. The yoke would sound better, right? They were built to look like a yoke. That when we take the sacrament, we are yoking, we're being yoked in there. But Brigham deliberately, he could have built that just square, but he wanted it to have some kind of symbolic. Whether Joseph directed that, I don't, I don't know. But I just think that he was actually working on that after they'd lost the temple, and they were on their way now to Missouri. Uh, but he finished it because he wanted the temple finished before he walked out of the building and left it. So I, I, you're right. Symbolism has a very powerful effect. Yeah. To Don, I wonder if it subcon- if subconsciously he thought that, or were the subconscious <laughs> that That's why you did it. It was an instinctive. Yeah. Did you yeah. use three plant panels? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think it's now, where, where does subcon- subconscious come into this whole plan here? Okay, hold on. We're getting there. Because I think it does. Yeah. So Brigham Young. They didn't have an architect involved in that part of the design, but the church does have architects in designing all other temples, and symbolism matters, and yet it's really not that uncommon that they build a temple, they get the whole thing built before anybody notices the baptismal font isn't below grade. (laughs) 
And the, and the church has a policy on baptismal functions. Yeah, they're going to be there. They're supposed to be below grade. So, uh, so the fact that the architects aren't always 100% locked in and aware of what the symbolic goals and objectives are for everything. There's, there's too much to, to be aware of everything. Well, I, I, cer I certainly remember being at the Rome Temple. We, we've been to the Rome Temple uh, a few times. And we were there while it was still under construction. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, the guys that were working on the Rome Temple while we were there under construction had no idea about symbolism or not, or a word of wisdom either. <laughs> and then we had to fire all of those guys and start over with the Rome for, Temple. For many years, yes. the temples are designed by non-member architects. They are, yeah, exactly. All right. So that said, so, so let me bring this to the point. It's one, guys, it's one of the reasons why it is, if we were simply going to try and get through the Book of Mormon as quickly as we could, this ain't, this ain't be, be the way to do it. But that's not, that is the blessings of this class, is that we get to kind of look in depth at some aspects of here. Okay, so, so I want to... Um, like, let me let me do it this so, way. Yeah. How, do, how does all this that we do? Yeah, it's like how does, how does this all? What does this mean to anything, right? Oh, watch how it. You, watch how I stick the landing here. <laughs> all right. So long as it's not a spiral fracture. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here here's the thing that I noticed in the in the sequencing of of Third Nephi. Uh, let's just remind ourselves. At the very first of, of 3 Nephi uh, 17, when, when the Savior's going to come, remember they hear something, they hear a voice, they don't, show, don't know what it means, can't understand it, can't figure it out. Okay? Okay? So then he comes down, he appears, he teaches them, they all get to touch him. So now they get some knowledge and trust that they're actually feeling something physical here. Now, we know that after he does the sermon at the temple and he's gone through all of this, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, they then give him the puppy dog look. Uh, please don't go. You guys are tired. No, I'm going. No, please don't. Okay. So then he stays and as we were talking about last time, then, then they have that incredible revelatory experience with uh, angels and and he has compassion and heals them. He blesses them and their children. He prays for them. He weeps and they feel joy. Okay? But isn't it interesting that then it says that he goes a ways off and what happens? He prays and they cannot understand what he's saying. And the words are so marvelous they can't even write them down. And sometimes people have looked at this and said, well, maybe he was speaking in the Adamic language. Or maybe this was, he was quoting from the temple endowment and they weren't allowed to write him down. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of things. Yeah. Pretty sure that's written down. Yeah. Yes. And as I read that thing about it, when you've had a very intense spiritual experience, it's difficult to describe it. Uh, hold on to that. Okay, that's where we're going to go. Yeah. Is that the point? Why that would need scripture to know that? Yeah, because we just are so filled with what that is. It just, yeah, okay. But it says that they, it was so amazing they could not write them down. Okay, so then what, is, what does he do after that revelatory experience? 
he introduces the sacrament. Then he gives the disciples the power to give the Holy Ghost. And then he leaves. Then, then he's out of there. Okay? So then they, so then they spend the, the rest of that night, as we've talked about, going out, gathering everybody. How come you didn't come to Passover? Oh, you know, we were, I was busy. No, I'm rebuilding. Man, you, you know, Jesus came. He's here. You know, my son that was lame, now he walks. Oh, wow. Okay, so they're going to gather people all night long. Okay? Then they get there. The disciples teach them. They desire, what is it we want? We want the Holy Ghost. That's what they want. Um, I think I've told the story, have I not, of um, while I was on my mission, uh, we, we had a guy that lived with us. Uh, or, or didn't live with him, but he was there a lot. He, had, he was a member of the church who had uh, been a member of the church for a long time. He went on a trip. This was in England. He went on a trip to America. Uh, he actually uh, ended up sleeping with a woman. Uh, he then came back. He's excommunicated. He's been excommunicated for a long time. And while I'm there as a missionary, um, he, he is able to be, get rebaptized. Okay? And... And he says, to, and he, I became very, very close to him. He'd come in, he'd clean our house, you know, he'd do the dishes. He just was, and he just was, just a, we just loved him to death. But, and so he said, he, he pulled me aside one, one, one night and he says, uh, Elder Hinckley, I'm about to get rebaptized. And I've asked Elder so and so, who was here uh, a couple of transfers ago, if he'd come and baptize me. And I said, Awesome, that's good. He says, Would you give me the, could, could you give me the gift of the Holy Ghost? I said, I would love to. And he goes, listen, mate. <laughs> and I remember him saying, listen, mate, you don't understand. <laughs> he says, the baptism is important to me. But what I have missed all these years was the Holy Ghost. And, I am, and I, that's what I want more than anything. I want the Holy Ghost back. And it just has been empty without that. Okay. Um, and he was just emphatic about that. Um, and, and, and I will say as a, as a side note, uh, so I stood at the font while he was being baptized, and it's and and uh, he uh, he went down into the, he he was baptized. He come out, and then as he was walking up the stairs out, he just burst into tears and just kind of sobbed, and then went in and got dressed. and And uh, just as I got ready to give him the gift of the Holy Ghost, he just leaned over and he says, "I saw my mom. I saw my mom. She died a few years ago." And she was just there, and she's beaming, and she's happy, you know, as I'm coming up out of the waters of, of baptism, okay? Uh, and, and, and I have to tell you, giving him the gift of the Holy Ghost was a real joyous experience, okay? All right, so they, they desired the gift of the Holy Ghost. So they're baptized, and they receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, I want to, I want to then, I want to sequence this in here now. So I want to go over to... Let's talk about what then happens. Let's see. They're separated out. Um, came to pass. Jesus departs out of the midst of them. Went a little way off. This is 3 Nephi 19. Uh, Jesus departed out of the midst of them. Went a little way off. Bowed himself and said, Father, thank you. Uh, it, it is because of their belief in me that 
I have chosen them out of the world. I pray they'll give them the Holy Ghost. Um, and then it says, um, He thanks them. Okay, now. It came to pass that he went a little way off and prayed unto the Father. And tongue cannot speak, and this happens again, tongue cannot speak the words which he prayed, neither can be written by man the words which he prayed. Okay, second time that's happened. But, but look at, think about the sequence of everything that's happened. The healing, uh, the, uh, the, the sacrament, the baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then this is something that I had never seen before. You guys may have seen it, but I had never seen this. 33. And the multitude did hear and do bear record, and their hearts were open. And they did understand in their word, in their hearts, the words which he prayed. Now something remarkable is happening that didn't happen before. And then he'll say, nevertheless, 34, so great and marvelous were the words that he prayed, they cannot be written nor uttered by man. So it's interesting, we still can't write them, we still can't speak them, but we understand them. That's a massive change. That understanding has come for something that they can't write, they can't speak, but they understand. That, I think, is in the realm of some kind of spiritual intuition, spiritual knowledge that they have that, that is so powerful, but it comes... Why the change? What do you think was the change agent here? The Holy Ghost, I think. Yeah. That when we are in tune with the Spirit and we're listening, we may not still have... It's, it's almost like the conduit opens up and we still may not be able to describe it or write it because it's so amazing, but we get it and we get it and it, and it should propel us to action. Yeah. When you use the key word listening, I think uh, there's great words of music. Yes, there are. And it's very similar. You can experience that without having to mess with words. <laughs> there... There are two. I've said this before. There are two songs that I think we should never sit for ever. That we should always be standing out of respect. In my mind, one is the Hallelujah chorus. Handles Hallelujah chorus. I just cannot sit and listen. I have to stand to be part of that. The other one is is one called the Hallelujah anthem, and it's the one that they wrote specifically at the dedication of temples. And it is just, if you've ever been to a temple dedication, they always sing this, this anthem. And it starts off with the, the temple has been dedicated, and, and there's this set thing, and then there's this praise. And I, I don't know who wrote it. Maybe somebody else does. Maybe W. w. Phelps or something. But there is this anthem, and you just have to almost rise to it, and you just lift it among yourself. Yeah. I think that many things that the Savior has spoken that we didn't understand. I, I am inclined to believe that when he said, love your enemies, turn the cheek, walk the extra mile. I bet there are a lot of people that says, what in the world is he talking about? We don't understand. And, and, uh, and a lot of times those things aren't disturbing. They just pass by us. I think that these sorts of things are pronounced in the temple every day. 
there are statements that are made that we know we hear. Yeah. But when we have this, I'm sorry for being emotional. Yeah, yeah, because you're feeling it, right? Yes, and it's so incredibly beautiful. It's, it's holiness. Yeah, and, and again, you're being taught things and knowledge is coming to you that if you're just going to try and write down what you're experiencing, you, you can't write it down. Yeah, it just transcends what we're trying to do. And suddenly you have, and, and that's why I think just trying to say is that knowledge, I think that's why understanding is, is probably the better word for what has occurred here. I have an understanding, well, though I may not be able to teach it or explain it, uh, it's like the grandeur of looking at something incredible and going, you just got to be here. I can't give it justice to what I'm experiencing. Yeah, yeah, Jim. So, I don't know, I, I get the impression that some people think that the Savior changes us or the Holy Ghost changes us. Uh-huh. And I've, I've always had the perspective that the Savior and the Holy Ghost are catalysts. That, in fact, one of my favorite uh, parables is the wheat and the tares. And in my interpretation of the parable, it's a fiction. Uh, we were all born as tares. And God changes us, allows, He provides the environment That's an interesting thought. where we can choose to become wheat. Yeah, and that He will then provide, and then He provides all of the elements. That, that would enable us Nobody to, to change. Nobody starts out as weak, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I totally disagree with that. <laughs> you know that there was an antenna uh, in Italy where they mined the most beautiful marble in the world. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard the story? Uh -huh. this, this gentleman, he, he, he cuts out a chunk of marble and he's struck by how incredibly beautiful it is. And this is a true story. And he immediately contacts the two greatest sculptures in the world, you know, Da Vinci and then, what's that, a guy's name, the dentist? Michelangelo. Yeah, right. And, he, and, and, uh, and he says, you've got to come and see this. And they did. And both of them saw David in it. They didn't see different people. They both saw David. And again, that's the way we are. Each of us, when we come to this world, we're like blocks of uncut, unrefined marble. Yeah. Yeah. It's there. We are there. We're not. Yeah. We're, so the junk that's being cut away from us is that we. It's it's the things that distract us from our divinity, you know. And the, yeah, well, and that's why that's why again, and I, I've quoted over and over. I, I really love uh, President Oaks saying it's not about what we do. That 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 ultimate exaltation is about what we have become. That that that. That God's in embryo thing, that divine nursery that we've been talking about, that the Cappadocian fathers were looking at, was that, that as it sits right now, we're pretty tear-like. I think, I think his perspective is he's looking at our spirit and our, our soul. Uh -huh. I'm looking at our, at our, our natural, at our natural manness. And yeah. you have to cast off the natural man and return sure. and allow the spirit and the, to, to, to become what's... To, to, to change us. And I think, and part of what I guess I'm trying to, to say here is I think as we're watching, as you, if you just look at what happened then in the next 200 years from these people who understood, not just heard, 
not just experienced, but understood and were changed. That now the, the fruits are 200 years of peace. Now, there's no question that there's a certain amount of people that were no longer there, but those that were there, even the righteous people over the history of stuff were, had a shelf life of righteousness about five years. <laughs> they just never quite get it right. Well, I was just going to say, they not only changed themselves, but they were able to convey that somehow to, I mean, if you look back 200 years from where we are now, I mean... Isn't that amazing? I mean, you th think about the span of 200 years, that's... To, to be able to convey that to those uh, yes. descendants. That, and, and I think filled with that understanding and power, I think would change how they taught. I think it would change the example that they would set. Uh, because the first thing, I mean, we, I'm going I'm to actually kind of skip fourth Nephi next week, but the, the first thing he's going to talk about is there were no more ites. In other words, all the divisions suddenly started melting away because we understood that we were supposed to be one. They didn't lose their individuality or their individual gifts and spirits about who they were, but the but the the demarcations between Nephites and Lamanites all melted. It's, it's kind of interesting how it's possible for 200 years of nobody being a Nephite or a Lamanite, or even if it was only 50 or 60 years of that, how they would then decide whether or not they were going to be a Lamanite or a Nephite. Because after that point, yeah, we'll talk about, because after that, Lamanite and Nephite is not, as much about heritage as much as it is about belief, because they, because they all, because they all intermarried at that point. It was no longer genetics. Yeah, absolutely. So then it's a choice. It is. So, all right. So we stick the landing. Did we get there? <laughs> wow, what a what a great discussion. Um, comments. So I guess I guess I would kind of finish this by saying. What would you say then is the difference between understanding and knowledge? Our gut and logic. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the gut plays a role in that. It's understanding it at a deep level. Okay. Okay, I'm going to throw a little wrench. Uh, you, you guys do that all the time. This, this is a wrench, wrench place. I, I don't think there's as much of a stark difference between knowledge and understanding. I think that the two are related, and that I think that as we, you know, like in the Doctrine of Covenants, you know, we gain knowledge by the Spirit. Yeah. And I think that no matter what, you know, like she was saying with music, and I think, you know, you've studied the mind, you know, I've studied biology. No matter what area you study, as you study it, I think it gives you a chance to recognize the grandeur of the world and of the different aspects of what we live. Isn't it interesting that without the gospel through the Middle Ages, knowledge wasn't there. We didn't grow in knowledge. And once the gospel was restored, our knowledge has, yes, greatly increased. And yeah. So there is a difference, but I think that there's a link there that as we grow more and study more and learn something new, then mm -hmm. it helps with that. The Holy Ghost, you know, the Lord helps us with that study. Yeah, and, and I think ultimately when we look about exaltation, I think that's why sometimes I think we get stuck in, 
I'm going to be saved because of what I do. I'm going to be saved. It's a merit-based, merit-badge theology kind of thing. Uh, And I I think it's interesting that, uh, and I understand kind of why they did it, but I still, it's one of those changes I wish the church would make, that they changed the words of I am a child of God, uh, President McKay did in the late 60s. Uh, Because now, now we sing, teach me all that I must do to live with him someday. It's incremental. They'll get to I must be sooner. Yeah. The origi- what it said originally was teach me all that I must know to live with him someday. Because I, I think ultimately our knowledge, maybe that's the biggest change, our growth is our, in terms of our knowledge and understanding and that, that, that binds us and connects us with God to where we become able to return to live with him. So well, the root of the word knowledge is experience. Mm. That's what it means. Experience. Oh, wow. That's cool. So that, that makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, I, I, I bear in my testimony that part of, part of our experience here is to learn and to grow, and, as we, and those, it kind of comes in that order, I think. As we learn, as we gain Knowledge ultimately it grows towards understanding and wisdom, and that becomes a catalyst for our for uh, changing us uh, and becoming uh, the kind of people we're supposed to be. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right, can I get a closing prayer? Somebody feel so moved? Yeah, go for it. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you have any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.